Greetings, everyone, and before I begin ranting and raving incoherently, I thought I'd tell you about Anchor by Spotify. It is the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need to do it all in one place. And believe me, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone. And when you host through Anchor, you can distribute your podcast through listening platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and even more. It has everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's free. That's right, Anchor is free, and who does not like free? So if you're interested or you want to make your podcast today, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That is the Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Ludicrous Car Review. And I'm back. Yep, um, I apologize for missing last week out of the blue like that. Um, I took a sudden trip down to Tennessee to take a look at a vehicle, and, uh, well, I didn't get a chance to pre-record it, but I had to jump on it quick, so, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to pre-record, as I just said. So, yeah, I missed last week. I apologize. But, in more important news, I got some new wheels for my car. Yep, I didn't just do that over the week. I decided to purchase some new tires, some Continental DWS Plus tires. And let me tell you, not only do they look pretty damn good, but they're also some pretty damn good tires. I got a chance to test them out on my Banana Boat or my 2006 Charger. And let me tell you, I love them. If you're looking for a decent set of wheels, I'd strongly recommend them. But anyways... I suppose in keeping with the new three founder tradition I started a couple months ago, yes, I almost missed the ludicrous car of the month, but, well, I couldn't miss it because, honestly, there was something that popped up in a Target a little while ago that reminded me of a car that has long since been forgotten because, well, the company that made it was, well, forgotten as well. Today I'm going to be discussing for you the ludicrous car of the month, the Tucker 48. Now... Before I get into it, I'm also going to be covering some news stories as well, because obviously I've missed last week's news cycle, and there are some juicy bits of information that I feel I have to share with you all as well. And also with the actual car review itself, I'm going to look at, looking at the car itself more than the actual story. The reason for this is rather simple, is that, well, I could go into a whole four-hour diatribe of what happened and the SEC investigation and everything else, and I'll be covering kind of a brief history summary of it. But overall, there are others who do it much better. In fact, if you're looking for one that actually does a good job with it, it has some pretty funny commentary as well, and this is generally an interesting podcast to listen to. Overcrest does a much more in-depth story investigation as far as what happened during the investigation, who just this Tucker guy was, and the car itself. But for me, I'm going to be investigating more, taking a look at the car. So... Before any of that happens, though, I feel as though we have some news to cover because, like I said, we missed last week's news cycle, so I need to do a little bit of catching up, shall we? So, in more, well, recent news, a little bit of tidbit came out from a group called YAA. Personally, it's my favorite source to get information, especially on the car market. They do an excellent job, and I've encouraged you in the past to check them out, and I still do, especially if you're looking to buy a car. Anyways, so the fact is, is that YAA has covered a little bit of investigation work in that a group of Toyota, you see, Toyota has two branches that kind of run their whole inventory for all their dealerships and that. One of these branches has decided to make their add-ons for their used car, what is it, not used car, what is it called, Toyocare? God, that's an awful name. Toyo Bonus Care? I have no clue what this name is. Anyways, this crappy name, Toyo Guard, I think it is. Yeah, Toyo Guard Platinum is being forced onto the Moroni label. What does this mean? It means that even if you don't want to pay the extra 600 bucks a month, or a month, sorry, 600 bucks out of the price tag of your vehicle, you don't have a flippin' choice. It's now part of the car, technically. This is a whole new step of weird insanity, because to be honest, 
who the hell thinks of putting insurance on a car's Moroni label? Moroni labels are things like your car's heating seats and your engine size and stuff like that. Not add-ons to a car. And it sets a whole new precedent in that dealerships and other groups might just decide, well, if they can do it, why can't I? Now, mind you, this is not the dealership tossing this on. This is the place supplying the cars. The problem with this is, is that you cannot get this taken off. Even if the dealership wanted to remove it, they can't. Now, they might knock off the price of the thing on the vehicle, but they can't actually take that off the Monroney label. And what do you get for this whole 600 extra bucks on their price tag? Well, to be honest, not much. A couple oil changes, maybe some security measures, but otherwise, it ain't really much. Nothing personally that I couldn't handle myself. But the fact is, is that even the uh, mechanical bits are just are just not necessary. I think it's a bit of a, a sleazy ploy to get a couple extra bucks out of people on that. And I think it's um, pretty jackassery, if you ask me. <laughs> it's the only way I can really think to put it. In other news, well, GM and Ford and... Well, recently reported, I think it was last Friday, I think it was, that, um, well, sales are not doing too hot. Now, mind you, this was last week, but, um, yeah, in, uh, Ford and GM's, well, they've been struggling, especially GM, but Ford is not any real different. Obviously, the shortage was going to catch up with them, and while they posted record profits before, it couldn't last forever. It's just a simple fact. And Ford took a pretty dang good hit. From 2021 up until the present, Ford sales dropped by 17% from 2021. That is a huge hit to their bottom line. And just a, just a huge hit in general. I think that uh, I think the shortage that uh, the companies were kind of elated on, especially the dealerships, are going to start catching up to them right about now. And I think this is where we're going to start to see some of these companies really start to hurt. But GM took one of the bigger hits out of the whole group. They lost almost 20% in the U.S. That is a huge amount of vehicles. Almost a half a million new vehicles that otherwise would have been sold well, never even hit the market. And well, for GM, I imagine it's scary because a lot more people are beginning to um, look to foreign brands and that. Because, I mean, in the U.S., GM always held that top spot. And with Toyota taking it over and um, even with all of their uh, recent questionable antics, I don't think they're going to let it go, not anytime soon at least. So I think this spells a bit of a uh, questioning turning point for GM and I think even Stellantis and that. Because I think Stellantis also reported like a 20% drop as well. I think these companies need to start looking over and going, well, what do the American people not want now? Well, we're just going to force down their throats. And overall, I think, uh, especially GM for that matter, they need to take a look at their car lineup and ask, is this really what they want? Because they're recently in other battery news as well, and we'll get onto this as well, Lightning, well, Ford isn't done with their Ford Lightning. They announced a new electric pickup truck EV would be coming to the market soon. How soon? Well, they're saying about 2023. Now, personally, do I have an opinion on to what this car is probably going to be? Well, I do. Obviously, Ford announced their Maverick last year, and it's been doing pretty dang good in sales. And after all, it's a pretty cheap option. They have every engine option available, from gasoline to hybrid and everything else. It would only make sense that an electric option would be coming. So personally, while Ford hasn't really announced it officially, and I'm not saying this is official either, my personal opinion is, which truck will become electric next? I personally think it's going to be probably pointing to maybe the Expedition. I guess that's always an option, especially with GM coming out with their electric Suburban. I think it was their Cadillac or basically, I don't remember which one it was. But um, no, I think it's my bet would be the Maverick because it would kind of round off that whole gas, hybrid, and electric system that they seem to have going. And would kind of round it off with every option available. Now, the problem is with pricing and that, well, this is supposed to be a workman's cheapo truck. And the fact is, is that, well, 
when you're trying to charge people under about 30,000, that becomes a little difficult with an electric car. And you saw how well cheaping out went for the Chevy Bolt. And speaking of the Bolt, I got some final bit of news before we get on to the important bit of information today. GM recently announced that their five, they would be um, removing battery support for the Chevy Spark, a five-year-old for well, pretty much a five-year-old vehicle at this point. Now you're probably thinking, so what? Why is that important? It's a five-year-old vehicle. Lots of companies do that. See, the problem is this makes it so that even if you wanted to get a new battery or get battery work done or even repair work done, unless you're going to a private dealership, odds are they won't do it or can't do it. Now, some dealership, obviously, groups will still do the work, but getting pulled apart and even, even a new battery, if you have to, is next to impossible or actually impossible. GM no longer is making them anymore. Why is this important? Well, because the fact is is that you're not driving a gasoline vehicle. If you take care of a gasoline engine, baby it, pamper it, make sure it's all got the fluids and everything else like that, and uh, is taken good care of, that motor can last for, well, pretty much forever if it's taken care of properly. An electric battery ain't like that. It doesn't matter how good you take care of it, even then, at the end of the day, there's still something called battery degradation. However many charges you take is going to hurt the battery. And one of these days, no matter how hard you try, and most projections put it around, I think it was a half a million miles, it's going to die. Now you might think, well, half a million miles. Well, that's some, some very, very liberal objections. Now, if you're driving in a bad climate, maybe a bit more, maybe just the batteries don't last that long for your type of vehicle. The fact is, is that not having battery support past five years is a big deal because even if my Dodge Charger blew up tomorrow, I could go to a Dodge dealership and get a new engine dropped into the thing. It would cost me a bit of money, obviously not $15,000 like a freaking battery would, but for about ten grand, I could get a new motor dropped into it, pretty damn fancy one too if you ask me, and the fact is, is that, well, I'd have support, and my vehicle is... Well, let's just say I'm about five years old for putting on collector plates on it. That's about a 20-year mark. It's about 15 to 16 years old. This thing is not new. And the fact is they're removing battery support after only five years. It's a big and questionable step for GM's so-called battery initiative in that, especially with their recent problems with the Chevy Bolt. Anyways, I just thought I'd give you a heads up about that, especially if you're a Chevy Spark owner in that. Maybe you might want to see about getting rid of this thing before news really begins to get out. So anyways... I suppose that'll cover it for the news. On to the, uh, well, the important reason why I'm sure you all are interested in coming here. That's right, the ludicrous car of the month. The Tucker 48. Or rather, the Tucker Torpedo, as many like to call it. So, get some background on this thing. This car was produced from the Tucker Corporation, obviously by a man by the name of Preston Tucker, about the exact name you'd think of, to be honest, when they make the car. And uh, it was produced in, uh, yep. oh, bloody hell, what is the name? It was produced in Chicago, Illinois, but uh, Preston Tucker, while in Yuplissi, Chicago, I can't say the name, and was briefly produced in Chicago for, in 1948, only about 51 of these cars were made before bankruptcy forced them to close in 1949, March 3rd. Obviously, this was not just because they were bad business practices. In fact, while Tucker the greatest businessman he did begin to get his company up and running but the problem was negative press an exchange commission investigation and government insight and he possibly even some interference from the big three from michigan and a senator named homer s ferguson possibly played a big role into while forcing the company to closure you see during these investigations a court order made it so that nobody begin could finish work on the 
factory itself, meaning that no cars could be produced. This meant that during the whole year-long investigation, nothing was getting done. He was bleeding money. And to be honest, for the longest time, he even refused to not pay his employees. He continued to pay them no matter what. And while he, in the end, he wound up winning these investigations, well, let's just say the if it was from the big three, they got what they wanted. The cost of paying the employees and keeping the factory well, at least in operating condition while the investigation was going on ended up running them right out of business. But let's take a look at the car itself. You see lots of these type of things, and like I mentioned before, if you're really looking at a good podcast to go over what all happened and what order and everything else like that, I definitely encourage you to check out Overcrest Podcast. They do an excellent job in the interview, and I believe it's Overcrest. They do another one called, I think it's Smoking Tire, but one of those two have it. Look it up. Odds are you'll find it. Anyways, let's look at the car itself, shall we? Because it is truly a magnificent marvel of a car. And to be honest, if it wasn't for the fact it got ran out of business, it would actually be a pretty damn good car even today. The fact is it had a lot of well, design features that even now are being considered futuristic. I mean, headlights that move with the steering wheel to go around turning that. I mean, that's some fancy shit from Europe. That's not something you see in even modern cars. And it's something that they actually began to deploy in a car way back in 1947. It was truly spectacular. Now, we can't deny the fact that the car had some interesting iterations. The first prototype that rolled out in the um, GM Auto Show was a... Um, it was an interesting vehicle. It uh, ran a, if I remember correctly, a jet turbine engine from a helicopter. And the thing was so damn loud when it started up that every individual in the entire convention hall heard the bloody thing start up from miles away. And I suppose it did do its job. It got a heck of a lot of attention. Some good, some negative, but it got attention. And honestly, that is kind of what you're looking to achieve when announcing one of these things. But anyways... That um, that engine obviously wouldn't last. You obviously can't have a jet turbine engine that deafens every single guy that drives by. So obviously they had to move on later. They arranged, they actually moved on to a Boxer 6, or I think it was a horizontally opposed engine. Yeah, that put out about 166 horsepower and 100, or 372 pounds of torque, which is pretty damn good considering the vehicle's overall weight and size. Tucker would also end up developing his own two transmission systems. I believe it was a cord with the 810, 812, Tucker Y1 modified cord, and then a Tucker Matic type uh, transmission. I think this had a couple of different weird gear ratios to it. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later. The car originally was projected to cost about a thousand bucks, but ended up being a little bit more than that, about four thousand. Obviously, this is a big price hike, especially in 1947, but honestly, with the features you got in the car, it wasn't like you weren't getting nothing for that deal, and it truly was innovative. In an era where all cars were front-engine cars, this thing was actually a rear-engine, rear-wheel-drive car, kind of like your Porsches and that. It was a bit bigger, and it had the same front end as a normal car, but that was for a different reason, and one, again, we'll get into it in a minute. Now, overall, the Tuckers, obviously, are worth a hell of a lot more today, and, um, Overall, the development of the thing was, well, truly spectacular. So let's get into some of the exterior and overall dimensions of the car before moving on to the interior, which, honestly, there's not a whole lot to discuss in there, and just some of the overall design features that made this thing truly a spectacular marvel that, honestly, should have probably not been kicked to the curb the way it was. So... Let's look at the outside of this thing, shall we? Now, overall, it's got a very 1940s appeal, and it's kind of like a cross between a Studebaker and a 
almost like a Cadillac, but it's got the sweeping side panels of something almost futuristic. It's actually a truly magnificent car. Now, the exterior has one quirky feature in it, and that is three headlights, two on the outside and one in the middle. The one in the middle was very unique in that once the steering wheel turned past 17 degrees, the headlight would turn with the direction of the steering wheel, allowing a almost like a headlamp to be turning with the car, meaning that if the car began to take a curve, this light would illuminate the curve itself. It was truly a revolutionary design feature, and to be honest, we're starting to see some of these design features being rolling out in Europe as well. Today, not, well, 80 years ago, the fact is, is that it's truly a spectacular marvel that honestly was way, 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 way ahead of its time. And honestly, it's too bad a lot of these things didn't really adopt it because it was kind of a cool design feature in that. Now, obviously, there were some problems because, well, I think there was like 17 states that didn't allow for three-car headlights. So they designed these cool little cap cover that still covered it and kind of made it look like the front end of a Studebaker. But overall, it was still a damn good-looking car. It had a very swept-back, loaded design that... Um, also very sporty and aerodynamic despite being a 1940s four-door sedan and the thing looked like it could go pretty damn fast it had a very stout design if you just kind of looked at it in a picture you think this thing is like one of those big tall like metal blocks but this thing is actually low to the ground kind of sits kind of narrow and uh pretty has a pretty wide wheel width in fact i think the overall wheel dimensions on this thing had a uh, wheel width of about 79 inches which is a pretty dang good car and the height was only about 60 inches which again wasn't standing super tall especially considering a lot of these things were stepped into vehicles not down so overall it was actually revolutionary in a lot of different aspects but it was more than just that the truly spectacular thing was crash prevention that's right this thing was way ahead of its design and safety i mean before the theory and crash prevention was well hope you have the bigger car and while well, you can hold on to the steering wheel and don't go through the seat well this thing was truly spectacular it had a perimeter frame surrounding the entire vehicle it covers like almost like a bumper car protection that prevented it from basically every kind of impact. It even had a roll bar integrated into the roof. Some design features we wouldn't see until like the Pontiac Bureau, which had like a roll cage system built into it. And to be honest, it made the car pretty damn safe. And honestly, is something way, way, way ahead of its time when safety was, it wasn't even an afterthought to be honest. On top of that, it even integrated the fact that the steering box was behind the front axle to protect the driver from a front end accident. This meant that if all the controls were to crumple up into the car, kind of with a front end impact, the instrument panel and all the controls were within easy reach of the steering wheel, making it obviously easy for the driver to reach. And, uh, well, I got off track there. Sorry, my notes got scrambled. No, I was going to say is that the fact is if this car crumpled or something like that, you wouldn't get the steering wheel and all the mechanical bitch shoved up into the driver's cabin while squishing the driver when his legs the fact is it was designed to crumple under the car that's right a design feature that we'd see many many years later in the crumpled technology we use today on top of that the instrument panel was also very much designed with safety in mind this was what I wanted to say earlier. The fact is that everything was designed to be easier and within reach of the driver from the steering wheel so that the driver never had to really take his hands off the eyes of the road or the steering wheel. None of the dials were off to the side, and this meant for an interesting interior that we'll get into in a minute. And it had a host of other safety features as well. You know, the fancy windshields we use today? Well, they were using that as well. Obviously not something you were really planning on using in 1940, but the fact is, is that this was one of those shatterproof windshields that when upon impact, the, the windshield would actually pop out of the car, protecting the occupants from, well, flying debris like glass and stuff like that. 
in the top of that, the car's parking brake even has separate keys so it would be locked in place to prevent auto theft. I mean, a theft on the brake? Who do you honestly think of that? But it is truly ingenious. The doors extended into the roof, making easier entry and exit from the vehicle. Basically, again, more modern stuff you see today. Most doors just had a frame on it. They didn't have the whole body frame over the top. It was truly an ingenious idea that, honestly, again, years ahead of its time. It was built somewhat different from... Obviously, most cars out there, and the previous model even was a little bit different. The prototypes were designed features with engineers, where concepts were tried and improved, obviously, in that. But overall, the production cycle changed a bit when the actual production model came out with all these features. The prototype was very stripped down and focused on the sportier aspects. But nobody really thought about all the safety features. They kind of just threw in there for really, honestly, no real charge. They didn't advertise it that much, that's for sure. But with the fancy designs of the exterior, let's get into the interior, as I mentioned some stuff before. Like I said before, the interior of the car is, well, it's a bit sparse. They kind of combine some things from other vehicles. The steering wheel, I think, is from a 1941 Lincoln, donated by Ford. And I think the door panels, or the door releases, came off a Lincoln Zephyr. It was kind of just a little bit of a hodgepodge in there, but they did have some very unique features. The interior, if you look at it compared to most, even classic cars of the day, was very sparse. This was for a very good reason. In fact, it didn't even have a passenger's glove box. That was actually in the passenger's door, and there's good reason for this. The fact is, it only had just that one little point by the steering column. This was to make room and to provide better safety for what they called the crash chamber. Pretty much what Tucker is now famous for today, and the very things we personally use today to make vehicles more safety. This is a padded area out of the passenger seat, free from obstructions, providing the seat passengers an area to protect themselves in the event of an accident. Basically, it was like its whole little chamber area to prevent anything from happening. The engine intermissions were mounted on a separate subframe, which was secured with only six bolts. The entire drivetrain could thus be lowered and removed from the car in minutes. Basically, the Tucker envisioned a loaner engine quickly being swapped into service in just 30 minutes. So basically, you could go into your dealership and say, I want a sportier car today. They could pop all that engine and toss in a whole new one in a couple of minutes, and you're off on your way again. It really was truly revolutionary and a fascinating idea. And to be honest, that'd be pretty damn cool. I'd love just to be driving and go, well, today I need to save some fuel. Put it in a V6. Or just be able to drive and go, I feel like driving like a bat on a hill. Put it in that Hellcat and let's go. And just on my way it was <laughs> honestly it was truly revolutionary anyways i wish some cars would actually design this because this is actually <laughs> it's ingenious there were also several other innovations later abandoned in the car that um, we didn't quite discuss it had magnesium wheels disc brakes fuel injection self-sealed tubeless tires a drive direct torque converter transmission all were evaluated and tested but were dropped on the final prototype due to the cost and honestly, all of this were design features way, way, way ahead of its time. A fuel ejection in 1947? Are you nuts? That's, that's some fancy-ass shit. I mean, fuel injection wouldn't become big until the 80s. That's almost 40 years ahead of its time. The fact is the Tucker car was truly a revolutionary car as well. And overall, I'm a little disappointed that getting out there. So now it's getting some performance. We kind of got the looks and some of the design features out of it. But there were some cool performance aspects to this as well. As I mentioned before, they used a insane aircraft engine to start off. But obviously that wasn't going to work. Now, as I mentioned earlier, they ended up going with a little bit different engine later on. But the truly special engines were the 589 engines. Yep, 589. You have to hear this engine is... It is insane. It is a 9.65 liter flat six cylinder with a hemispherical combustion changer, fuel injection, and overhead valves operated by oil pressure rather than a camshaft. 
It was an engine way, way miles and years and decades and generations ahead of its time. It took fuel pressure fed by each valve, which was timed by the intake and exhaust entries, and measured by spring-loaded plungers. This was an injected in the car and had large pistons built of aluminum and magnesium castings, making them lightweight in. Well, almost indestructible, with steel-plated cylinder linings. Obviously, these were lightweight and very powerful cylinders, massive as well. This unique engine was designed to idle at 10 RPM, or 100 RPM, sorry. 100 RPM revolutions per minute. That is ridiculous. Most cars, to get into perspective, nowadays idle at about 1,000 RPMs a minute. This would have meant that you would have probably had some damn good fuel savings. It wasn't for the fact the cylinders were probably the size of my freaking head. Anyways, this thing was designed to cruise at... 250 to 1200 revolutions per minute through the use of direct drive torque converters on each drive wheel yep more revolutionary shit to be honest we're not even seeing today but rather just in electric vehicles yeah miles ahead of its time anyways each wheel instead of the trends of a transmission it was designed to produce almost 200 horsepower which you think would be a bit more but not bad and 450 foot pounds of torque a boatload of torque for the time Heck, that's more torque than my car even has. Of the torque, only about... And, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, 450 of torque of torque at only... Get this. 1,800 RPMs. At 1,800 RPMs, my car's maybe putting out a fraction of that. That is just insane. It could cruise at 60 miles an hour. And it'd only be going at about 1,000 revolutions per minute. What my car idles at... This is an insane engine, to be honest, and it's too bad that this thing ended up having to be scrapped. These features were an auto industry first, and to be honest, even nowadays would be considered an insane engine. But the engine developed proceedings, well, problems began to occur. Obviously, a hyper-complex engine with limited technology at the time meant that these things were prone to breaking down rather easily. And at the end of the day, only six of these prototypes with the Finding 9 engines were built. But it was installed in only the first test chassis and the first prototype. And it's kind of too bad because this engine and Tucker actually survived. I would have loved to see these engines on the road. They would have probably been loud, proud, and pretty damn powerful. And honestly, miles ahead of its time. Now, obviously, like I said, the premiere kind of doomed it from the start because obviously they hyped it up as some kind of ridiculously overpowered engine. And while it was that, the, um, well, like I said, they tried an aircraft engine, but, were, but the engine, I apologize for making this a little mixed up, the engine that scared the shit out of people was actually not an aircraft engine. You would have swore it was. No, this was the 589. Yep, this massively overpowered engine was so damn loud, the Tucker car had to play as loudly as possible just to try to drown out the noise. And additionally, the high-voltage starter required the use of an outside power source to get the engine started. So while it was revolutionary, it had its major, major drawbacks. Like I said brilliant engine but maybe perhaps too far ahead of its time in the end the engine would end up being swapped out for as i mentioned before the um much weaker and much smaller more palatable uh little boxer six engine which was a more stomachable 334 in cubic inches yeah probably a good idea Anyways, at the end of the day, the sad thing is only about 51 of these cars were produced, and in the end for the factory, only about 36 were produced. Because while the factory was forced to shut down, he managed to maintain a couple of more employees to produce, I think, about 16 more, making the original 51 cars we now see on the road today. And overall, the Tucker car, car is um, the Tucker 48, the Tucker Torpedo, as it's also called, is truly one of my favorite cars from the 1940s. 
And to be honest, obviously I'm never going to ever buy one because I don't have a couple millions of dollars to spend on these things. But the fact is, is that it would be truly a fun car to drive. It's unique. It's pretty damn stocky and cool looking. And honestly, a sports car way ahead of its time in the 1940s. In an era where things were increasingly massively large and weighed a metric ton. A car that weighed 4,000 pounds, had 200 horsepower and 450 pounds of torque. That would have been a pretty damn fast and pretty damn cool car to own. And honestly, I still love the looks of it today. This that's those individual swept fenders, even that torpedoy look front end that normally would look so damn awkward on the Studebaker looks pretty damn cool on the Tucker with its more all sleek profile. Anyways, that concludes my ludicrous car of the month with a big thumbs up to the Tucker 48 or the Tucker Torpedo. Good name, honestly, as well for it. Anyways, I appreciate you all sticking with me and uh, again, I apologize for well, bailing on you last week out of the blue. But I had a pretty damn busy week uh, heading down south and also putting on those new tires, which, by the way, again, I love them. Need a new set of tires for even your sports car SUV, something that's more good in the rain and even in the summertime. I'd strongly advise the uh, Continental DBOES Plus 6 Plus. Good tire, brilliant design. Anyways, I appreciate you all listening to my podcast and that. I've been getting a lot more viewers lately. I'm really excited to see that, and I appreciate all of it. Again, if you like my videos, I appreciate any comments you would like to leave, and I also appreciate a like and subscribe, not a like, a subscribe would be muchly appreciated. I hope you all have a great day and a wonderful night. Goodbye, my friends.